Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response by Francis A. Sullivan, S.J. Chapter 2, The Fathers Prior to St. Augustine. One of the problems put to the early Christians by Jews and Gentiles to whom they proclaimed Christ as the Savior of humanity was, If Christ is the Savior of all men, how is it that he came only recently into the world? What about the salvation of all those generations of people who lived and died before he came to save us? As we shall see, the early Christian writers offered a response to this challenge, which manifested a positive attitude toward the possibility of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles during the pre-Christian era. Salvation for those who lived before the coming of Christ. The first such writer whom we shall consider is St. Justin Martyr, the most important 2nd century Greek apologist for the Christian religion. Before his conversion, he had been a Platonist philosopher. Having recognized in Christianity the truth he had been seeking in philosophy, he became a teacher and defender of his new faith. Three of his works have come down to us. His two apologies, addressed to the Roman authorities who were persecuting the Christians, and his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, in which he answered the objections which Jews were making to the Christian religion. In this latter work, he gave the following answer to the question about salvation for Jews who had lived before the coming of Christ. Since each person would be saved by his own virtue, I also stated that those who obeyed the Mosaic law would likewise be saved. They who are obliged to obey the law of Moses will find in it not only precepts which were occasioned by the hardness of your people's hearts, but also those which in themselves are good, holy, and just. Since they who did those things which are universally, naturally, and eternally good are pleasing to God, they shall be saved in the resurrection together with their righteous forefathers, Noe, Hanok, Jacob, and others, together with those who believe in Christ, the Son of God. It is noteworthy that Justin's argument here would apply not only to Jews who observed the law of Moses, but to all who did what is universally, naturally, and eternally good. In other words, for Justin the philosopher, the law of Moses was salvific because its commandments corresponded to the natural law, prescribing what is good, holy, and just by its very nature. As one might expect from this, Justin also gave a positive answer to the question about the possibility of salvation for Gentiles who had kept the natural law. For him, this meant living according to reason, which, as a philosopher, he had known as Logos. As a Christian, he knew that the Logos was incarnate in Christ. This explains his way of answering the question put to him about the Gentiles who had lived before the coming of Christ. If some should accuse us as if we held that people born before the time of Christ were not accountable to God for their actions, we shall anticipate and answer such a difficulty. We have been taught that Christ is the first begotten of God, and we have declared him to be the Logos of which all mankind partakes. Those, therefore, who lived according to reason, Logos, were really Christians, even though they were thought to be atheists, 
such as among the Greeks, Socrates, Heraclitus, and others like them. So also those who lived before Christ, but did not live according to reason, were wicked men and enemies of Christ, and murderers of those who did live according to reason. Whereas those who lived then, or who live now, according to reason, are Christians. Such as these can be confident and unafraid. It is remarkable that we find in the second century this anticipation of Karl Rahner's term, anonymous Christians, to describe those who are justified without Christian faith. Our next witness from the second century is St. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyons, and, like St. Justin, a martyr for the faith. His major work was directed against the Gnostic heretics, who posed a grave threat to the Christian faith at that period. In the course of this work, Irenaeus spoke as follows about the providence of God with regard to those who had lived before the coming of Christ. Christ did not come only for those who lived at the time of the emperor Tiberius, nor does the Father exercise his providence only for those who are living now. Rather, he has provided for all those who, from the beginning, have lived virtuously in their own generation and feared and loved God and treated their neighbors with justice and kindness, and have longed to see Christ and to hear his voice. The last phrase obviously refers to the people of Israel who looked for the coming of the Messiah. It can perhaps be taken also to refer to Gentiles who had come to believe in God as Savior, and thus could be said to have longed implicitly for the coming of Christ. We come now to the two great 3rd century teachers of the school of Alexandria, Clement and Origen. Both of them had been trained in Greek philosophy and applied their learning to the defense and explanation of the Christian faith. Clement had the following to say about the salvation of Gentiles prior to the coming of Christ. God has care for all, since he is the Lord of all, and he is the Savior of all. It cannot be said that he is savior of these and not of others. As each one was disposed to receive it, God distributed his blessings, both to Greeks and to barbarians. And in their own time, those were called who were predestined to be among the faithful elect. For a cultivated Greek speaker like Clement, of course, anyone who did not speak Greek was a barbarian. But God had offered the grace of salvation to them as well. While Origen was primarily a theologian and exegete, he also applied his talent to the defense of the Christian faith in an important work in which he replied to the objections of a pagan named Celsus. One of these had to do with our question. Celsus asks, How is it that after so many centuries, it is only now that God has thought to bring men to live righteously, and that previously he had no concern about that? I reply that there was never a time when God did not want men to be just. He was always concerned about that. Indeed, he always provided beings endowed with reason, with occasions for practicing virtue and doing what is right. In every generation, the wisdom of God descended into those souls which he found holy and made them to be prophets and friends of God. Of the writers of the 4th century, we shall cite only the great preacher of Antioch and Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom. 
In one of his homilies, he replied to the objection which the pagans of his day were still raising about the late coming of Christ. When the pagans accuse us, saying, What was Christ doing during all that former time, when he was not yet concerned for the human race? And why has he come at the last minute to provide for our salvation, after neglecting us for so long a time? We will reply that even before his coming, he was already in the world. He was already taking thought of the work he was to accomplish. And he was known to all who proved themselves worthy of such knowledge. You cannot say that at that time he was unknown, because he was not unknown by all, but only by the upright and the virtuous, any more than you can say that today he is not being adored by men, on the grounds that even now not all have come to adore him. There is certainly other evidence in the writings of the fathers prior to St. Augustine of a positive response to the question concerning the possibility of salvation for people who had lived before the coming of Christ. A fruitful source of speculation about this was also found in the New Testament in the reference to Christ's preaching to the dead during the time between his death and resurrection. However, what we have seen should suffice to show how general was the view that God had provided the means of salvation to both Jews and Gentiles during the pre-Christian era. It was also commonly held that salvation had always been through Christ, although there were different explanations for this. As we have seen, some went so far as to assert that the just could be called Christians, a striking anticipation of a modern theory. We must now see what the fathers prior to Augustine thought about the possibility of salvation for those who lived during the Christian era, but were not members of the Christian community. It is in this context that we will begin to find the stern warning that there is no salvation outside the church. We shall look at the principal texts in which this statement is found, with a view to determining, as far as we can, just what the writer meant by it, and against whom it was directed. We shall see that there is an important difference between the way this axiom was used and the people to whom it was applied during the first three centuries, when Christians were a persecuted minority in the Roman world, and the way it was used after Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. We begin with the earlier period. No salvation outside the church in the first three centuries. On his way to martyrdom in Rome, St. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch in Syria, wrote letters to the Christian communities of the cities in which he had stopped on his journey. One of the principal themes of these letters was an exhortation to the faithful and their presbyters to remain in close union with their local bishop. Evidently, there were instances of disunion in some churches, which led Ignatius to issue the following warning in his letter to the Church of Philadelphia, a city in the vicinity of Ephesus. Be not deceived, my brethren. If anyone follows a maker of schism, he does not inherit the kingdom of God. If anyone walks in strange doctrine, he has no part in the passion. It should be noted that here it is not only the maker of schism, but also those who follow him, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Likewise, it is not only the originator of false doctrine, but also those who walk in it, who will have no part in the passion. 
When Ignatius warns Christian schismatics and heretics that there is no salvation for them outside the church, he clearly judges them personally guilty for being outside. We have already quoted a passage of St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lands, about salvation before the coming of Christ. As we mentioned above, his major work was directed against the Gnostic heretics, who separated themselves from the ordinary Christian communities, claiming to have a higher knowledge of the Christian mysteries than was taught by the bishops and the churches. Against these separatists, Irenaeus declared, In the church, God has placed apostles, prophets, teachers, and every other working of the Spirit, of whom none of those are sharers who do not hasten to the church, but who defraud themselves of life by an evil mind and even worse way of acting. For where the church is, there is the Spirit of God, and where the Spirit of God is, there is the church and all grace. The Gnostics prided themselves on their higher knowledge, but Irenaeus warned them that it is only in the true church that one can have the life and grace of the Spirit, of which heretics and schismatics are defrauding themselves. It is obvious that Irenaeus judged them guilty of their separation from the church, and hence responsible for their own exclusion from the realm of the Spirit. Origen, the pioneer of Christian allegorical exegesis of the scriptures, introduced the warning that there is no salvation outside the church in a homily on Joshua chapter 2, which tells about the two Hebrew spies in Jericho who took refuge in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Origen saw in this house a type of the church, since it was the one place of safety in the city that was about to be destroyed. His application of the Old Testament story to the current life of the church is as follows. This command is given to the woman who had been a prostitute before. All those who are found in your house will be saved. But as regards those who go out of your house, we shall be free of this oath we have made to you. Therefore, if anyone wishes to be saved, let him come into this house of her who once was a prostitute. Even if someone of that people wishes to be saved, let him come into this house so that he may find salvation. Let him come into this house in which the blood of Christ is the sign of redemption. So let no one persuade himself. Let no one deceive himself. Outside this house, that is, outside the church, no one is saved. For if anyone goes outside, he is responsible for his own death. Some exegetical remarks may be helpful here. The woman who had been a prostitute suggests the image of the Gentile church as the converted sinner. She who had lived in pagan vice is now the chaste bride of Christ. The scarlet cord which Rahab hung out of her window was the sign for the invading Hebrew army that her house was to be spared. For origin, it signifies the blood of Christ, which is the sign of redemption for the church. Origen's invitation to members of that people is clearly directed to the Jews who had not accepted the Christian message of salvation. But the major warning in this passage is directed against those who go out of the house in which alone salvation is to be found. Just as was the case in Jericho, anyone who would go outside now would likewise be responsible for his own death. 
This clearly refers to Christians who, having once been in the church, would leave it to join a heretical or schismatic sect. There is no salvation outside the church, and those who go outside have only themselves to blame for their loss. We come now to St. Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa, who died as a martyr in 258. Although, as we have seen, others before him had warned that there was no salvation outside the church, Cyprian's name is especially associated with this axiom, which occurs with frequency and urgency in his writings. Despite this frequency, however, there is no instance of his addressing this warning to the non-Christians who were still the majority of the people in the Roman Empire of his day. Cyprian directed this warning to Christians who were either in danger of being separated from the church by excommunication or who were already separated by heresy or schism. In every case, there is clear evidence that Cyprian judged such people guilty of their separation from the church and therefore personally responsible for their exclusion from the salvation to be found only in the church. The following are the principal passages in which he warned those outside the church that there was no salvation for them where they were. The first is directed to some Christians who were defiantly disobedient to their bishops and thus in danger of excommunication. Let them not think that the way of life or salvation exists for them if they have refused to obey the bishops and priests. Since the Lord says in the book of Deuteronomy, And any man who has the insolence to refuse to listen to the priest or judge, whoever he may be in those days, that man shall die. And then, indeed, they were killed with the sword. But now the proud and insolent are killed with the sword of the Spirit when they are cast out from the church. For they cannot live outside, since there is only one house of God, and there can be no salvation for anyone except in the church. In a letter dealing with schismatic Christians, Cyprian invokes St. Paul's description of the church as the bride of Christ, and asks, How can a man who is not with the bride of Christ, and in his church, be with Christ? Similarly, in a letter dealing with heretics, Cyprian based his argument on the text where St. Paul says, And if I deliver my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. For St. Cyprian, the unity of the church was essentially a unity of love. And hence, anyone who violated this unity by heresy or schism was sinning against the virtue of charity. He drew the logical conclusion. Neither baptism of public confession of the faith under torture, nor of blood shed for the faith can avail the heretic anything toward salvation, because there is no salvation outside the church. In his work on the unity of the church, Cyprian returns to this idea that even martyrdom cannot purge away the guilt of schism. Nay, even though they should suffer death for the confession of the name, the guilt of such men is not removed even by their blood. The grievous, irremissible sin of schism is not purged even by martyrdom. No martyr can he be who is not in the church. The kingdom shall be closed to him who has deserted her, who is destined to be its queen. Peace is what Christ gave us. He bade us be united in heart and mind. He enjoined on us to keep intact and unimpaired the pledges of our love and charity. 
No one can claim the martyr's name who has broken off his love for the brethren. This is the Apostle Paul's teaching and witness. If I should deliver my body to be burned and have not charity, I profit nothing. In the same work, Cyprian employs the images of the church as bride, mother, and ark to castigate the schismatic Christian. The spouse of Christ cannot be defiled. She is inviolate and chaste. Whoever breaks with the church and enters on an adulterous union cuts himself off from the promises made to the church. And he who has turned his back on the church of Christ shall not come to the rewards of Christ. He is an alien, a worldling, an enemy. You cannot have God for your father if you have not the church for your mother. If there was escape for anyone who was outside the ark of Noah, there is escape too for one who is found to be outside the church. Whoever breaks the peace and harmony of Christ acts against Christ. Whoever gathers elsewhere than in the church scatters the church of Christ. If a man does not keep this unity, he is not keeping the law of God. He has lost his faith about father and son. He has lost his life and his soul. It would be difficult to express the thesis that there is no salvation outside the church more strongly than St. Cyprian has put it here. No doubt some of his statements, if taken out of context, would exclude from salvation everyone who is outside the church, and not just Christian heretics and schismatics. But in each case, the context shows that he is not directing this warning to pagans and Jews, but to Christians whom he judged guilty of persisting in sins against faith and charity by reason of their allegiance to heretical or schismatic sects. It is also well known that Cyprian was convinced that baptism administered in such sects not only did not confer the grace of the Holy Spirit, but was simply invalid on the grounds that if it did not confer the Holy Spirit, it was of no value at all. For this reason, he, along with the other bishops of North Africa, insisted that those who came into the Catholic Church from such sects should be baptized again. Cyprian did not see how a sacrament could be valid without being fruitful. It took another century of theological progress and St. Augustine's explanation to settle this problem. On this question, Cyprian was mistaken, to be sure, but he can hardly be accused of heresy for following what was the tradition of the Church of North Africa up to his time. There is no insistence in his writings in which Cyprian explicitly applied his saying, no salvation outside the church, to the majority of people who were still pagans in his day. We know that he judged Christian heretics and schismatics guilty of their separation from the church. Did he also judge all pagans guilty of their failure to accept the Christian gospel and enter the church? We do not know. However, some light on his attitude toward pagans is given by the letter which he wrote to one of them named Demetrianus, who had been involved in persecuting Christians and was now approaching death. This is what Cyprian wrote to him. We implore you to make a reparation to God while you still can, while you still have a little time left. We show you the way to salvation. Believe and you shall live. For a time... You have persecuted us. Come and rejoice with us forever. 
It is here below that life is either lost or held on to. Don't let your sins or your age make you put off gaining salvation. While still in this world, repentance is never too late. Even at death's door, you can beg pardon for your sins, appealing to the one true God in faith. For God's goodness grants acquittal unto salvation to the believer so as to pass from death to immortality. It is Christ who grants this grace. One gets the impression that Cyprian would not have excluded this man from salvation, even though he was obviously outside the church, provided that even at death's door he had made an act of faith in God and repented of his sins. At least there is no mention of the absolute necessity for his salvation that he become a member of the Christian church before he died. Looking back over the texts that we have cited from Ignatius, Irenaeus, Origen, and Cyprian, we see that when these early Christian writers spoke of people being excluded from salvation by reason of their being outside the church, they were consistently directing this as a warning to Christians whom they judged to be guilty of the grave sins of heresy and schism. It is quite possible that, if asked, they would have answered that there was no salvation outside the church for Jews or pagans either. But it is significant for the history of this axiom that we do not find them applying it to others than Christians at this time, when Christians were still a persecuted minority. As we shall now see, the case was different when Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire, and most people had accepted the Christian faith. No salvation outside the church in the last decades of the 4th century. We have to keep in mind the tremendous change that took place in the course of the 4th century with respect to the status of the Christian religion in the Roman Empire. During the first decades of this century, Christianity suffered the most cruel and sustained persecution it had ever suffered at the hands of imperial Rome. However, with the edicts of the emperors Galerius, 311, and Constantine, 313, the persecution came to an end, and from the time of Constantine, Christian emperors began to favor the church and grant privileges to its clergy. Now that it was no longer dangerous to profess the Christian faith, but rather advantageous to do so, it is not surprising that the 4th century saw a great influx of people into the church, with the result that toward the end of the century, the great majority had embraced the Christian faith. Emperor Theodosius I, who ruled from 379 to 395, declared the Orthodox Christian religion, that of the Bishop of Rome and those in communion with him, to be the official religion of the empire. He even forbade the celebration of pagan sacrifices and other pagan rites. However, he did not change the traditional Roman policy of toleration toward the Jewish religion. In this new situation of an officially Christian empire, it is not surprising that we find a new attitude on the part of Christian writers with regard to the minority who had not accepted the Christian faith. It is now that we find the fathers applying the doctrine that there is no salvation outside the church to the situation of pagans and Jews. As we have seen, the warning addressed to Christian heretics and schismatics included a judgment about their guilt for being outside the church. 
What we find now is a similar judgment of guilt with regard to everyone who had not accepted the Christian faith. The reason behind the judgment was the assumption that the message of the gospel had, by now, been proclaimed everywhere, and everyone had had ample opportunity to accept it. The conclusion was that those who had not accepted it were guilty of refusing God's offer of salvation and would be justly condemned. The most influential Catholic bishop during the reign of Theodosius I was St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan. He had this to say about those who, in his day, still refused to believe in Christ. If someone does not believe in Christ, he defrauds himself of this universal benefit, just as if someone were to shut out the rays of the sun by closing his window. For the mercy of the Lord has been spread by the church to all nations. The faith has been spread to all peoples. An Eastern contemporary of Ambrose was St. Gregory of Nyssa, who, in his great catechetical oration, likewise insisted that all had by now heard the call to faith, and that those lacking faith had only themselves to blame for refusing the gifts. If, then, faith is a good thing, they say, why has this gift not come to all? Now, if what we are saying were taken to mean that faith was distributed to men by the divine will in such a way that some were called, but others received no call to faith, then with reason one could accuse this mystery of injustice. But if in fact the call has gone out to all, with no difference on account of rank, age, or nation, how could it be right to blame God for the fact that his word has not achieved its dominion over all? For he who has full power over the universe, for the supreme honor of mankind, left something in our power, of which each one is alone the master. And this is the will, a thing that cannot be enslaved, and has self-determining power, since it is seated in the liberty of thought and mind. Therefore, such blame would more justly be attributed to those who have not been drawn to the faith rather than to him who has called them to believe. Our third witness to the judgment expressed by bishops of the late 4th century concerning the guilt of those who had not accepted the Christian faith by their day is St. John Chrysostom. It would seem that some members of his flock had objected to his harsh judgment on the pagans and had wished to excuse them on the grounds of ignorance. Here is his reply. One should not think that ignorance excuses the non-believer. When you are ignorant of what can easily be known, you have to suffer the penalty. When we do all that is in our power, in matters where we lack knowledge, God will give us his hand. But if we do not do what we can, we do not enjoy God's help either. So do not say, how is it that God has neglected that sincere and honest pagan? you will find that he has not really been diligent in seeking the truth, since what concerns the truth is now clearer than the sun. How shall they obtain pardon who, when they see the doctrine of truth spread before them, make no effort to come to know it? For now the name of God is proclaimed to all. What the prophets predicted has come true, and the religion of the pagans has been proven false. It is impossible that anyone who is vigilant in seeking the truth should be condemned by God. 
Chrysostom returned to this argument in a homily in which he was exhorting his flock to pray for the conversion of pagans. Did Christ give himself up for pagans, you ask? Yes, Christ died for pagans as well. How then can you be unwilling to pray for them? But how is it, you ask, that they have not believed? It is because they did not wish to. And yet Christ did his part on their behalf. His passion bears witness to that. It was undoubtedly St. John Chrysostom's judgment that there was no salvation for pagans outside the church and that it was their own fault that they were outside. His judgment on the Jews of his day was even more implacable. The sermons which he delivered at Antioch, warning Christians against participating in Jewish festivals, contained some of the most offensive language about Jews to be found in Christian literature. That he judged the Jews guilty of rejecting Christ and excluded from salvation as long as they persisted in this rejection is evidence on every page of those sermons. Let it suffice to mention just one remark he made in the course of an exhortation to some of his flock who were resisting his call to conversion. He warned them, You have grounds for shame if you do not change for the better, but persist in your untimely contentiousness. That is what destroyed the Jews. With this, we conclude our treatment of the fathers prior to St. Augustine. There are others than the ones we have mentioned who had something to say on our topic. However, their views do not differ substantially from those we have seen. Three points stand out in the thinking of the writers of this period. The first is their generally positive attitude on the possibility of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles who had lived before the coming of Christ. The second is their uniformly negative attitude about the possibility of salvation for Christians who were separated from the great church by heresy or schism. These they judged guilty of grave personal sin against charity, since they identified the communion of the church with love and saw everyone who adhered to a schismatic group and not merely its founders as guilty of the sin of schism. The third point is that it is only toward the close of the fourth century when Christianity had become the official religion of the empire and the majority of its citizens adhered to it that we find the axiom, no salvation outside the church, being explicitly applied to pagans and Jews. Here, the negative judgment was based on the assumption that by now, everyone had had the opportunity to accept the Christian message, that its truth was evident to all, and that those who refused to accept it were closing their eyes to the truth by which they could be saved. It is important to observe that all three of these points are consistent with the belief in God's universal salvific will. Before Christ came, God had not so chosen the people of Israel as to deny the possibility of salvation to the Gentiles. Rather, he had offered the means of salvation to any who proved themselves worthy of receiving it. The exclusion of Christian heretics and schismatics from salvation was seen as the just punishment of their sins against the unity of the body of Christ. Likewise, the exclusion of pagans and Jews was seen as the consequence of their willful rejection of the truth. In no case was the exclusion of people from salvation seen as an arbitrary judgment on the part of God. If people were damned, it was not because God did not will their salvation. 
It was because they had refused the means of salvation he had provided for them. This does not mean that the judgment of guilt passed by Christian writers against heretics, schismatics, pagans, and Jews was necessarily a correct judgment, or one that we can share. They may well have been wrong in their judgment about the guilt of the people who were outside the church. The important thing is that if their judgment was mistaken, it was a mistake about the guilt of people, not about the justice or salvific will of God.